0: Hey,
1: and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time Magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast to become a patron. OK, so here we go. Black Images Matter, episode 5, social media, Activism, in conversation with anti racism advocate and author of Anti Racist Ally and Millennial Black, Sophie Williams. Support for Shades Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic, superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education, an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Cloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shay does so brilliantly. So go to ChlorisCBD.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees and sign up to support Shave through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Sophie Williams had a career in advertising before she left to create her own business, working with clients such as Netflix on projects combining her professional advertising experience with active anti-racism work. And in the summer of 2020, Sophie posted 10 slides to Instagram outlining how to be an anti-racist ally. Her slides, which were created in response to those outside the black community wanting to help and be allies, went viral. And we talk about how our visual culture and the language we use is a powerful tool in communicating to those outside our own social groups. Sophie also shares her hopes for our collective and active anti-racism journeys past the work we did last summer. And we talk about how to support black women in the workplace and what the future holds beyond her anti-racism work. Sophie is an absolute gem, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. I ask all my guests about the TV shows or the magazines or the art that they saw growing up that represented their life or their experience in some way, and how it affected their sense of self as they were growing up.
0: Yeah,
2: I think it's really interesting. And that's really been reminded to me by seeing the shows that we grew up with coming back to UK Netflix recently. So I understand that this is going to come out in 2021, but we're speaking in 2020. And the shows like Sister Sister and Moesha and things like that have just been brought back to Netflix, uh, Netflix UK. And they really reminded me that like, they were a window into seeing sort of people like me and the fact that they were in another country and sort of living these completely different lives didn't sort of seem to matter the difference was the geog- the geographical difference was sort of outweighed by the similarities of seeing someone who was in some ways like me which was such a, a unusual experience
1: and we got so used to american-based shows kind of following like the narratives of our own lives and we could yeah overlook some of the, the differences because the connections we had were much more important and mm. um, so useful to, to us growing up and you know nurturing the arts in all its forms, are so important. You know, I've been speaking to my guests about how um, it's it's the artists that have really come to the forefront through the the Black Lives Matter movement because they've honed their voice in communication. And I think that your posts that that went viral during the summer of 2020 really highlighted how our visual culture and the language we use is is such a powerful tool in, in communicating to those outside of our own social group. Can you talk a little bit about how you honed those skills and how it's influenced your anti-racism work?
2: Yeah absolutely. So I think it's really the interesting thing for me on that is you're right sort of I think for so long we have devalued the role that art and artists play in our society but often when we look at social change we see the art that is associated with it whether that's protest art whether that is street art, whether that is the art that we see on our TVs or the music that we hear, there's such a legacy of protest and cultural change and art going hand in hand, which I hadn't really sort of considered until this year, really. Mm. And so, I mean, with regards to my own output, people started calling that art earlier in 2020 when I first started putting out posts and I just didn't know what to do with that because to my mind nothing that I was doing was art because you're right I've spent a long time working in um, advertising but I wasn't the advertising is quite split so you have like the client services teams you have like the operational teams and then the creative teams Mm -hmm. and I was never part of the creative teams I was on the more operational side and so people started talking to me about my art and I was just like I don't know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. just making like these squares and it's, you know, I couldn't design anything. You know, there's Canva is this free website, which just allows you to do things in a design way, which I could never have done if I was trying to do it in Photoshop or InDesign or anything else. And so I think the technology that's been available to me has really allowed me to sort of to have that because I think first and foremost, I'm a words person. And I only have that Instagram handle because I wanted to sort of build a space and a community for a uh, millennial black, which is a book that I have coming out in April. And so there was never like a calculated like communication strategy. There was never like a calculated content plan or any of that. I just made a couple of squares on an account that had no followers that had like two, 300 followers. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and then something that I don't really understand happened. Suddenly people were looking, so I wanted to keep the conversation moving.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Well, that, that happens quite a lot with grassroots kind of messaging. You know, it sometimes it's instinctive and it's quick. It's not just reactionary, but uh, it's reactionary in the way that our emotions are so heightened with what's going on that it drives us to quickly create some output to communicate how we're feeling. And, and that's what you did in those posts. The posting of the black tiles that some people use were mm-hmm. perhaps their only contribution to support what was happening. I just wonder what you've seen and the feedback that they've given, perhaps, that has shown you that some change has happened and and people have done more than, than what we perhaps are seeing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think people have potentially done a little bit more, but I do need people to keep on doing more because I think a lot of what we do see is that people can be quite performative people can do like a couple of things online so what i try to do is to talk to my followers which makes me sound like some kind of cult leader talk to the people in my community maybe mm. um about what every week i say what have you done this week and i don't mm. want to see like i posted something i want to see like i wrote to my legal representative i wrote to my counselor i wrote to my you know mayor i sort of did these offline things that's really what i'm looking for. So, yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it was really exciting. People were messaging, saying things like, I've just gone to my first ever protest. I've signed my first ever petition, made my first ever donation. And that was really galvanising. Yeah, I think it's really natural that the news cycle moves on and that what people are able to dedicate their attention and their limited resources to. And let's not forget, during a pandemic... Like we've all got something else on our mind. We've all got stuff that's going on and changes that we're having to make. And, you know, the very way that we live has had to change. Mm. And I think that has helped because in some ways people have had to change everything. And so they can also change like habits and they can change who they shop with and they can change who they donate to and things like that. But it's also obviously been terrible because people are dying and, you know, there's this terrible thing. And it's really hard to keep people's attention and momentum up on something that might not directly feel like it touches their life.
1: I mean, we call it work. It's it's quite often the case that it's those who have been at the receiving end of discrimination in their lives that are the ones who are there to educate and try and encourage other people to work alongside us. I take a step back sometimes and wonder if the shift will happen where we can maybe take a rest from this work. I wonder how you feel about this or how do you see your life outside of anti-racism work in the future?
2: Yeah, I think there is a lot of burden put onto the shoulders of groups that have been marginalized to do that education piece and I think there is a necessary balance there because if you want to do this work and I really hope that people do um, I talk to people a lot about not reinventing the wheel like the one thing that you have thought of the one thing that you want to do is probably not the one thing that people who've been doing this work for decades and generations just haven't thought of yet Yes. Um it's, it's, it's slightly possible, but it's not probable. And so I encourage people to find out what is the message of people who've been doing this work, you know, read their writings, listen to them speak, do all of that work. But that does require there to be that existing body of work there for people to learn from. But I don't think that necessarily means that we have to keep on doing that emotional labour piece because... That body of work already exists; is out there. It's not as though there's a, a shortage of that information. Should people want to look for it, and should people want to engage with it? And so, yeah, I think it's tricky because I want people who have that lived experience to be the people who are driving that messaging, but not necessarily the people who are forced through the virtue of. You know the skin that they were born into, or you know, and they can sort of spread out much more widely, like the sexuality, the physical ability of the bodies that they're born into like there's all of, there's so many kinds of marginalized groups, and obviously race race isn't the only marginalization within our society. I want people to listen to their voices, but then I want them to take that information that they've learned and push it forwards and take it into those spaces that we are actively kept out from so there has to be a necessary give and take, I think, of listening before you act, but then not only relying on marginalised people to act. I feel like that was quite a long winded response, um, so sorry.
1: No, no, no. I'm like, I'm the queen of a long winded question. Hey, it's Lou here with a quick break. I want to share a show with you created by my editor, C.A. Davis. It's called A Lotto Thought, which I highly recommend, and well, I'll just let him tell you about it himself.
0: My name is C.A. Davis, and this is A Lotto Thought an immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. People are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early
1: 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives
0: together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation join at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial
2: people say, yes, they are Black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom.
0: So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at LATO underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.
1: Millennial Black will be published in April 2021, and it will highlight Black women's experiences at work. I've been thinking about the sort of unconscious journey that I had in my own career to carve out a space for the conversations that I wanted to have and the people that I wanted to share a space with. And it's only in hindsight now that I realise I wasn't comfortable in some of the workspaces that that I was in. I just wondered in the conversations that you've been having, the research that you've been doing for your book, if you've noticed that there's a shift in more black women carving out their own spaces.
2: I think it's really interesting. Black women are the biggest entrepreneurial group after white men. They are the only racial group, I think, where the women are business owners more often than the men. So black women are more entrepreneurial, according to the stats, than black men are, which is a really unique position. Um, Yeah, and looking into it, Lots of people do sort of celebrate that and they position that as a really positive thing. But looking into it and sort of doing that sort of quantitative, qualitative research piece, it does seem that they are, we are, churning out of businesses because we don't feel safe or we don't feel appreciated, we don't feel valued. We are more likely than not not being paid equally. Like there are all of these things that are pushing us out of those spaces and forcing us to create our own. So there was um, a piece of research from American Express which showed that black women are really the group who are taking these steps and, you know, starting their own businesses. And they say it's not because of recognized space of opportunity. So it's not being pulled towards an opportunity. It's being pushed from workplaces. Where we aren't able to be appreciated or not promoted in the same way or not paid fairly so i think before we sort of celebrate that um, entrepreneurial spirit in black women we need to look at where it's come from and it's come from the space of not being able to feel like you are welcome or equal in a workplace mm. and sorry to sort of continue to be negative but when these black women do start businesses they are much less likely to get um, either VC or seed funding. So they're leaving businesses where they're not being paid properly, and then they're going to start their own thing, and they're going through the normal financing channels that everyone goes through pretty much, unless you bootstrap, which not many people do. So they're going through the normal fundraising channels to start a business, and they're being told no. So they can't be in the place where they've left, they've had something that's pushed them out of that space when they've gone to make their own thing, they're not getting the same possibilities to help them start that any other group are getting. I think it's like 0.06% of BC funding went to black women in 2017, which is off the top of my head, the most recent piece of data that we have. So it's a complicated and often sad mm. story. But the point for me for Millennial Black is twofold. It's to say, first of all, it's not just you. Because I think so often we are in unpleasant or uncomfortable working environments, and we're made to feel like we are the problem. But because there is so much data, whether that be anecdotal or a small amount of um, quantitative data, um, because people don't really break groups down into blackness and womanness for research, so it's quite a big like you know data wrangling job. But when you do get that data, you see that those experiences that we are told are our faults, that we are told are us not getting into that environment personally, is actually structural racism. Yes. And it's experienced so much by so many black women. So one is to say you're seen, it's not you, this is an actual thing that's happening. And two is to say to people who run businesses, to people who are primarily white men who run successful businesses that hire other people. And who often hire other white men into those senior roles to say actually this is the environment that you are creating for this already marginalized group here's the business loss of you know businesses that are less diverse businesses that are less representative and um, perform less they make less money they are they have a lower market value so to say here's the situation and here's what you as someone who runs a business has to do if you want to remain relevant going forwards because we know that millennials and we know that gen z are one less white than any other generation we know that there are many many more people who identify as non-white in one way or another whether that is being black whether that's being mixed race whether that's being sort of whatever that non-whiteness is you need to capture these people millennials are in their 40s now the oldest Gen Zs are in their mid-20s. We can't ignore these people because your business will suffer if you do. So that's sort of the, the balance of where Millennial Black is. It's saying to Black women, you're seen. And it's saying to businesses, you got to fix this because you're going to suffer if you don't.
1: I just wondered what advice you might have for people listening who do want to support their Black colleagues um, in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I
2: spend a lot of time now, I was going to say going to businesses, but you know, having zoom calls with businesses and talking and giving presentations about anti-racism in the workplace and allyship in the workplace. And so often people say, but I'm going to get in trouble. If I say something, when I see these things happening, I'm going to get in trouble. And I'm not saying that there's no risk, giving your voice and standing up to people for what's right is risky. And I think my advantage in this is I've never been good at picking my battles. <laughs> I have always made it my business, whether you are doing something wrong to me, whether you're doing something wrong to somebody else, whether you know that's someone I know or someone I don't really know. Like My response to it is always, yes, there is a risk, but the risk of some personal retribution to you is not as bad as allowing systemic racism to continue to be perpetrated against generations of people like we have to take that personal risk and you know I'm lucky I don't have a family to support like I've got all of these things that mean that if I were to I mean I don't even know what my job is at the moment but if I were to lose my job for example I don't have a family. I don't have children looking at me who need me to care for them. So I recognise that that is a privilege. Telling someone that they're seen can be useful. It can sort of, you know, get rid of that feeling of. It can help not to get gaslit, essentially. But that is a sort of about where that sort of help ends. It's not going to make systemic change. And so, yeah, I I do encourage people where possible to devalue the potential for personal loss, when you see the explicit happenings of racism, like what might happen to you is probably not as bad as what is happening for sure now to someone else.
1: I would say if you feel uncomfortable when you are witnessing something happening like that, please like acknowledge your feelings because it's so easy to go, oh no, I didn't didn't really see that. I think if you feel it and you feel uncomfortable witnessing it, then it is happening and that is the moment to say something, you know?
2: Yeah. And however uncomfortable you feel, you probably don't feel as uncomfortable as a person who's being victimized in that moment, but you are in an uplifted position where you're not suffering that yourself and you
1: can do something
2: and you're right if you feel like something's wrong then that's a good indicator that you should be part of making that right
1: we look at what has happened and 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 what has changed since people have been more vocal since the protests happened and we've been listening to more people's stories and and more people have been more open to hearing those stories and so there's there's so much positivity as well I just wonder what light you do see within the work that you you're doing that that moving forward you can see that change is happening
2: i think the most encouraging thing is people saying i just didn't think i had anything to do with this before people saying that you know in their minds up until this point racism has been the work of individual bad people in the last years, they've started to realize that actually it is the structures and the systems and the institutions that we're part of. And even if you're not someone who is going out and committing hate crimes, which I hope none of us are, um, you're, you can still be part of that. You can still be part of those structures. And so it, it's encouraging to me that people are recognizing that. And it's encouraging to me that people are, even sort of within smaller structures, within their families, for, ex- for instance, They are using their voices and they are you know engaging in conversations and calling out things that they would have let slip Mm. this time last year that's really valuable to me because we can all make substantial change in our most immediate circles like our home lives like our family lives yeah i mean i'm hopeful i'm hopeful um but we have to keep up this momentum which is sort of loads of work it's just loads of work trying to think of how to keep people engaged all the time. But yeah, we're having these conversations that people wanted to ignore before. And to me, that can only be a positive thing.
1: If you have one conversation with, with one person and you don't sort of let it go because you're scared of risking that friendship or that relationship, actually that change can have such a, a, a magnitude of, of cumulative effect in in so many other people's lives. If you are part of a group that's
2: has been marginalized it 's not your job to always educate people it It's just not like it it is already exhausting having to live in a world that doesn't always want to treat you or view you as a whole human being and so if you are suffering in an area, for example, if you are a racially marginalized person, you don't have to spend all of your time educating people about race because that's going to be exhausting to you if you are A gender non-binary person you don't need to spend all of your time educating people about that that is not the best use of your time I do think we are I do think we can do that as much as we want but I do want to your listeners to know that if you are someone who is from a racially marginalized group and you don't feel like getting into that conversation about that right then that's fine because you know that's not your job that's not all you are
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect way to end that. So thank you so much for that, Sophie, and thank you for your time. Not at all. It was just so nice to, to connect
2: with you. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Hey, it's Lou with my takeaway from my conversation with Sophie, which really highlighted the issues in the workplace that black and brown women are experiencing. The statistics show that we are more entrepreneurial than any other group and up until recently we have positioned this as a positive. However, as Sophie explained, this is happening because we are being expelled from institutions and from businesses. It is because we don't feel safe and we are not being heard and we are not being paid as equally as our fellow white workers. So we are being forced to create our own workspaces. And when we create our own businesses, we are statistically less likely than any other group to receive funding through the usual channels. We are not the problem. The problem lies within the environments in which we work. And Sophie's point on this really resonated with my own journey that I've personally been on towards creating Shade. This is the space that I have carved out because it didn't previously exist. So thank you for supporting these conversations and the artists and the guests involved. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on and consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade Podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Thanks for listening. See you next time.